Our Father, we thank you this morning for the richness of this word. We thank you, Father, for the hope of what we have found in the scriptures as we have made our way through the book of Romans. We thank you for the hope that comes to sinners who do not deserve anything but your wrath. And instead, they have received from you salvation and sanctification and experienced the sovereignty of your plan of salvation in their lives. What can we do but respond to you in worship and praise and adoration? And that is what we do this morning. We come to you with hearts that are satisfied in you, with hearts that are stimulated to worship. Would you guide us in our worship? Would you guide us as we seek to understand and comprehend the incomprehensible one, you yourself? Would you give us as much understanding as we can have? And would that understanding lead us to joy of you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John Wesley Powell was a government explorer who led the boat expedition through the Grand Canyon in 1869. He wrote an account of that description entitled, The Most Sublime Spectacle on the Earth, in his book, Canyons of the Colorado. He writes this about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon of the Colorado is a canyon composed of many canyons. It is a composite of thousands, of tens of thousands, of gorges in like manner. Each wall of the canyon is a composite structure, a wall composed of many walls, but never a repetition. Every one of these almost innumerable gorges is a world of beauty in itself. In the Grand Canyon, there are thousands of gorges like that below Niagara Falls, and there are a thousand Yosemites. Yet all these canyons unite to form one Grand Canyon, the most sublime spectacle on the earth. Pluck up Mount Washington by the roots to the level of the sea and drop it headfirst into the Grand Canyon and the dam will not force its waters over the walls. Pick up the Blue Ridge and hurl it into the Grand Canyon and it will not fill it. Powell's task was almost impossible. How do you describe The indescribable. How do you put words to things that are transcendent? That is even more the impossible task of the Apostle Paul in the words that we have before us in Romans chapter 11 as he contemplates the glory of God's salvation. Not only the glory of God's salvation in His sovereignty and bringing salvation to Jew and Gentile alike and grafting Gentiles into the plan that was given to the Jews, but also in the, the sovereignty just in bringing any man to salvation, in bringing sinners to salvation, and in, in producing sanctification in them so they look like Jesus Christ. How can you explain 
the mercy of that salvation? How can you explain the perplexity of Jews and Gentiles together in salvation? As the Apostle Paul concludes his discussion of God's sovereignty and salvation, that's Romans chapters 9 through 11, and is about to begin applying the truths that he has been unfolding in his rich theology in chapter 12, he explodes, first of all, into a benediction of praise after he has taught and before he applies his teaching, he will worship. And this is how he will worship. Let the revelation of God's salvation lead you to delight in God. As you understand how God has revealed his salvation to you, let that promote delight in God in you. What we know about salvation should lead us to a humble satisfaction and a deep worship of Him. What we find in this passage is that theology and worship are partners. Rich theology leads to deep worship. Theology and worship are not mutually exclusive, but the one feeds the other. Theology drives and compels and informs our worship. Well, the writers or the editors of the text that you have before you probably didn't lay it out in this way. The, the editors of the Greek text did lay this out as a hymn of praise. And we don't know for sure that the apostle wrote this as a hymn, but more than likely it was sung in the early church. And more than likely this was a hymn. And this song is, a, is to be sung in four parts. This song of praise is to be sung in four parts. Let the revelation of God's salvation lead you to sing in delight of God. And let us sing in four ways this morning. First of all, verse 33, the first part of his hymn is an exclamation of God's praise, an exclamation of God's praise. And in in verse 33, in fact, we're going to find three distinct forms of praise. First of all, he says, praise God for his limitless resources. Praise God for his limitless resources. As the apostle begins this benediction, he uses the exclamatory word, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches. This is his emotional response of awe. He has contemplated God's sovereign salvation. And he he has contemplated God's salvation of sinners. He has contemplated the fact that that salvation comes only by grace through faith. He has contemplated how that salvation produces sanctification of sinners. And he is overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's actions towards sinners who deserve only God's wrath and instead receive His grace. What do you say when you should receive wrath and receive grace? Oh, oh, the depth of the riches. What drives the Apostle Paul to this exclamation of praise is a contemplation of the depth of the riches of God. This is, this is the only time the apostle will use this phrase, the depth of the riches of God. Yet he does talk 
about the riches of other things that the apostle, that God has given us. He speaks of the riches of His kindness and the riches of His patience and the riches of His glory. And here he combines the word riches with the word depth. And when he uses that word depth, he is intimating that there are things about God that are beyond our comprehension. The prophet Daniel uses a very similar phrase in Daniel chapter 2. Listen to what he writes. Daniel chapter 2, start in verse 20. Daniel said, Let the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. That word profound is a word that can be translated deep things. It is, it is God who reveals the deep things and the hidden things. In other words, Daniel is combining the words deep and hidden to, to make us to understand that they are similar kinds of things. The deep things are the hidden things. In other words, they are, the deep things are the things that we cannot know about God. They are beyond our comprehension. They are beyond our understanding. They are profound things. There are aspects of God's nature and work that are so deep. They are hidden to us. They are unreachable by our minds. We cannot go so deeply as to understand all of these truths. And in this particular phrase in Romans chapter 11, the apostle is pointing to the limitless, hidden, profound, deep, unsearchable, unknowable things about God's riches. Whatever attribute of God that we want to think about, whatever aspect of God that we want to think about, the apostle is saying there is a depth to that and a richness to it, to it that is beyond our comprehension and our ability to use up. Like a miner that plums to the depths of the earth to get, dig out treasures of gold and precious jewels, the one who contemplates God's nature will never run out of wealth. He will never run out of riches. The riches of God supersede our ability to spend, as it were, what God has provided. We should also note, that these unreachable, unrich, unsearch, unreachable riches, try saying that six times fast. We should note that the unreachable riches of God are not just the things He gives us, but the unreachable riches of God are what He is in Himself. Now listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. There's a mystery which has been hidden, hidden from the age, past ages and generations, but has now, now been manifested to his saints. And that is, and he's going to unfold this in just a moment, that is the, the union, the mystery is the union of Jew and Gentile together in salvation. Listen to what he says in verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of, 
of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What are the riches? The riches are not just what we have received, the mystery of salvation, but the riches are Christ himself, who is the hope of glory. What is the, what the riches are is the treasure of all that Christ is and all that Christ ever has been and all that he will be into eternity. That is the riches of God. And in this particular passage, the apostle points to some attributes of God and he points to two particular attributes that are rich that is that are rich beyond our comprehension and ability to plumb the depths of that relate to his knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here he's referring to the knowledge of God and then the application of that knowledge, the use of that knowledge, the the discernment of that knowledge. When we talk about the knowledge of God, we are referring to God's exhaustive understanding of all things. He is omniscient. There is nothing that is beyond the bounds of His understanding. What is it that God knows? God knows all things in time. That is, He knows all things in the past. He knows all things in the present. He knows all things in the future. Not just all things in our particular location, but He knows all things in every location at every moment in time. He not only knows all things in every time, but He knows every potential event of every potential circumstance and every real circumstance. So he not only knows all realities, he knows all potential realities. And he knows all things intuitively. That is, he never needs to go to school to learn anything. He, by nature of his being, already knows all things and never gains understanding, never increases in knowledge but always has a fullness of knowledge of all things. He knows everything on the macro level. He knows everything that happens on the earth and in the atmosphere and in the furthest reaches of the furthest galaxy that is in existence. He knows everything at the micro level, everything that happens in molecules and atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks and whatever's underneath a quark. He knows all of that. He knows all thoughts, all motives, all desires of every individual's heart and mind. Friends, because He is an infinite God, the things that we know, God knows, and He knows what we do not know, and He knows what we cannot even comprehend that He knows. So we have a list of all the things that He knows, And he knows infinitely beyond that because we can't even comprehend the vastness of what he knows. In this particular context, as the apostle thinks about the wisdom and the knowledge of God, we are to understand that he knows 
all men. He knows all men. He knows all sin of all men. And he knows man's inability to save himself. He not only knows all those things, but I think we are also to infer from the Apostle Paul that he knows whom he will foreknow and whom he will predestine for salvation. Verse 2, this same chapter. God has not rejected his people, that is Israel, whom he foreknew. He has a knowledge that he will bring them to salvation. He has planned their salvation and he will accomplish and bring about their salvation. He knows everything that there is to know at an infinite level. And the apostle also says he is deep in the riches, not only of his knowledge, but also of his wisdom. His wisdom is how he arranges things, how he orders things to accomplish his purposes. It is in particular in this passage, his plan of salvation For instance, who would know of the wisdom of God that he has revealed to us in verse 25? I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, you haven't figured it all out. There is a wisdom that goes beyond your wisdom, and that is the wisdom of God. The wisdom that produced a partial hardening To Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A wisdom, verse 26, so that all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That is the wisdom of God. He knows all things and he is wise in his application of all of his knowledge. Paul wants us to worship God for his knowledge, for his understanding, for his discernment. If you're following along in our Bible reading plan this morning, you read Psalm 94, where the psalmist affirms for us in similar tones the knowledge of God in heaven. Pay heed, he says in verse 8, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, for the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they're a mere breath. He knows everything that there is to know about a man, and he knows man's frailty, He knows man will pass and he knows that he is infinite in his knowledge and he knows that man's only hope is in him. It is God who knows all things. God is rich in his knowledge. I got so excited I forgot to give you the next slide. Praise God for his limitless resources. Praise God for his limitless resources of his knowledge. And then also in this verse... Praise God for the limitless resources in his actions. God is rich. God is rich in his knowledge. The end of this verse, God is rich in what he does. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. His judgments 
are unsearchable. Judgments might refer to his judicial action against sinners. It might be referring to his wrath. We saw that in chapter 2. We saw that again in chapter 3. It certainly could be that. But more likely, uh, this, this word judgment is a reference to his decisions, his decrees, his evaluations. And particularly, it's a reference to his decisions about the things that happen in salvation history. His plan to bring about salvation for sinners, particularly for the election of sinners. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He, he keeps those who have been in rebellion against him in that rebellion and on the other hand he also has mercy to provide mercy to to those whom he wants to provide mercy to that's his judgment that's that's his prerogative that's his decree that's his evaluation and those plans those judgments he says are unsearchable they're inscrutable They are beyond our understanding. Remember the context of what he's saying. Verse 33, there is a depth to the understanding of God that goes beyond our our puny little brain's ability to understand. And this is a vast part of that. It is unsearchable, unreachable to us in our minds. Not only are God's judgments unsearchable, but his ways, verse 33, are unfathomable. The paths that God takes are sometimes plain. The paths that God takes are sometimes revealed to us. We know exactly where God is going to go. We, we know exactly where, where God has gone, where God will go, and how He will get where He is going. We, we understand because God has revealed that to that. But then the Apostle also says there are things that God does and pathways that He treads that are unfathomable to us. They are incomprehensible to us. They're a, a who'da thunk it moment. Who'da thought that God would act that way? Paul is, again, especially thinking about the mystery of Jew and Gentile, both saved in God's plan. Verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. It's that statement that leads him to say, who can understand the pathway that God will go to bring salvation to sinners? And God is leading us to a praise of God who does things beyond our comprehension, especially in salvation. Friends, one lesson of this verse is that that God is incomprehensible. But the Apostle, in reminding us about the incomprehensible nature of God, would also have us to understand that the one who is incomprehensible has also revealed himself to us so that we can know him. So while he says, who who has known the mind of the Lord? That'll be verse 34. Who has understood his judgments? Who has fathomed his ways? Who is Who understands the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge? At the same time, he's also inferring we know something about this God. Because he has revealed himself to us. The one who has, who is inapprehensible to us has made himself to be apprehended by us. 
so that we can know Him, so that we can delight in Him. God's knowledge and actions are transcendent and infinitely beyond us, yet He has revealed Himself to us and given us minds to comprehend Him. The unknowable God has made Himself knowable. We cannot know everything that there is to know about God and His plan of salvation. But friends, we can know something. And those ways of God that are unsearchable are the very ways that Paul has just revealed to us, especially in chapter 11. And this is what, this is what should lead us to praise and adoration of God. The one who's unknowable has made himself knowable so that we might experience His grace in salvation. There is a second verse to His hymn of praise. It's given to us in two questions that lead us to praise in verses 34 and 35. Two questions for praise. Two questions that lead us to praise. Paul's Paul's exclamations of praise in verse 33 are now reinforced by two questions that provoke praise. Keep your finger here in Romans chapter 11 and come back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 34 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 and verse 14. In the context of Isaiah chapter 40, you'll remember that Isaiah was writing at a time when The nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, had been taken into captivity by Assyria. That happened in 721 B.C. And and, uh, Isaiah is writing to the two southern tribes, the nation of Judah, to warn them that unless they repent, a similar thing will happen to them, and they will go into captivity in Babylon, which superseded the nation of Assyria. And he's calling them in the first 39 chapters of the book to repentance. And in chapter 40, he is beginning a a, a section that will extend through the end of the book that explains God's ability to redeem and preserve the nation of Judah and and how they can hope in him and that, that Judah will not be overwhelmed by Babylon, but that God will yet restore Judah to its kingdom. And he's reminding them in this opening section of, of hope that God is greater than Babylon. And he asks, starting in verse 12, five questions that are given to us to assert the transcendence and the imminency of God, that he is unequaled by any other powers. He, he, is, he is the one who is uncreated, Well, everything else that exists is created, and it is created by Him. These questions point directly to the power of God to liberate Israel from captivity in Babylon and to fulfill God's promises that He gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Israelite, the person from Judah, might be asking, We are so weak, and Babylon is so strong, How will we be freed? And these questions assert that God has a plan and no nation, not even Babylon, can overwhelm it. Just before we get to the quotation that Paul cites, look at verse 17. 
all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It's a, there, he says in verse 15, they're just a speck of dust on the scale. They don't even move the scale. They're the lightest of lightweights. Babylon, nothing compared to God. Isaiah's question, one of Isaiah's questions that he asks is given in verse 13. And this is what the apostle cites in verse 34 of Romans 11. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Isaiah's questions in verses 12 and 13 are asking not who knows what God knows, but who can even measure what God knows? Who can evaluate the breadth and the depth of God's knowledge? We, we don't have a measuring stick to measure what God's know, what God knows. Now, now there are some people on this planet that are that have slipped over into arrogance right there are some people who are especially proud and there are some who suppose i'm pretty smart i know everything that god knows some might suppose that they can know god's mind so isaiah asked the further question who as his counselor has informed him Who's become the counselor of God? Who has, who has directed God in what he does? No one. God counsels man. Man does not counsel God. What's interesting is that the word that the apostle uses in verse 34, who has become his counselor? Is a word that's used, um, if I remember right, 12 or 15 times in the New Testament. Most of the times, it's in the, used in the Gospels. And it's used extensively about the religious leadership taking counsel together against Christ and seeking how they could kill him and put him to death. That's the counsel of man that is frustrated by God. Let's do everything we can to kill Christ. That didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to work, did it? No man counsels God. No one is wiser than God. No one gives him knowledge. No one directs him. He directs them. And this question affirms what is stated in verse 33 about the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. What God knows and what God plans are infinitely beyond our comprehension. The second question that the apostle asks in verse 35 is a paraphrase that is taken from Job 35 and from Job 31. In Job 35, Elihu is responding to Job and Job's unwise counselors, and he is correcting them. And so he starts by saying this in verse 5, Look at the heavens and see. And behold, the clouds, they're higher than you, Job and your friends. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, 
What do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? What does he receive from your hand? If you're righteous, do you think you're the one who makes you righteous? Or do you think that it is God who makes you righteous? Are you subservient to God or is God subservient to you? Elihu is reminding Job and his friends that when God is merciful, it is not because man has obligated God to act, but it is only because God is gracious and God is kind. They are righteous only because of God's kindness to act on them. God is not indebted to them. In a similar way, God himself speaks in Job 41. And here, if you're familiar with this section, God himself corrects Job. And in chapter 41, he speaks about Leviathan. Leviathan may be a reference to crocodiles and their power. He says in 41.1, can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Now skip down to verse 8. Lay your hand on him, on Leviathan. Remember the battle. (laughs) You'll not do that again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? In other words, if you see... Leviathan, this crocodile, won't you cower in fear? Won't you be humble before him? Understanding that you can't stand before him, you can't overwhelm him. Now note verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, is mine. You don't have anything apart from me, God says. There is nothing that you can give me that makes me indebted to you. No amount of good deeds will obligate God to act On behalf of any man, all men have received first from God. Everything that we have is from Him alone. Nothing He has is from us. As we think about sin, as we think about forgiveness and justification and salvation and salvation of God's people, Israel and Gentiles being grafted in, no one has ever made a contribution to God, that God is indebted to that man that necessitates a repayment from God. And that's the Apostle's point in verse 11. Who's first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? God owes no man anything. As one writer has said, God can finance his own undertakings. He's got enough in his wallet. To pay for everything. The Apostle Paul asks these rhetorical questions. Who can do this? Who can do this? And the unstated answer is clear, isn't it? (laughs) No one. God is supremely beyond us. God is supremely beyond our our abilities. And this benediction is designed to exalt God and humble us. 
The apostle has warned us earlier in this chapter already. Don't be proud if you're a Gentile that's been grafted in. Don't come to God with arrogance. And this is a reminder again that we are not to be arrogant before God. But these questions also imply the magnitude of God's grace. Listen to what A.W. Tozer writes in the knowledge of the holy. How utterly sweet is the knowledge that our heavenly father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him. And he called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Friends, that's part of what makes God inscrutable to us. He knows us. And he saves us anyway. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He knows us. And in his wise grace, he saves us anyway. Oh, friends, let that reality provoke you to a delighted worship of him. There's a third hymn to this song of praise. It is an affirmation of praise given to us at the beginning of verse 36. What makes the declarations in verses 33 to 35 true? Why are these things true? Verse 36, for... Because these realities are true because from him and through him and to him are all things. He gives us here three very short affirmations of who God is and what his glory is like. And we're going to unpack this in more detail next week. But just just notice very quickly these three things. Everything is from him. That is, God is the source of all life and all substance, both both physical life and spiritual life. God is the source of it. Everything comes to be through him. That is, he is the agent of all life and substance. He is the means by which all things come to life. He enlivens all things. And all things are to him. That means God is the goal of all life and all substance. Everything and every living being exists for his glory. We... Our salvation is ultimately not about us. It is not for us. It is for Him. It is for the revelation and for the exaltation of His glory above all things. And He says this is true about everything, about all things. There is nothing in existence anywhere that doesn't fit this description of being from Him and through Him and to Him. Why should we praise God? Because there is nothing that exists without God being behind it. He is the originator of all things. 
He is the sustainer of all things. And He is the source of all salvation and of everyone who is saved. Now the emphasis here is not just that God is above all things in authority, but He is above all peoples in salvation. He has made salvation possible. So we should praise Him. As I thought about that reality, I just mentally made my way back through the book of Romans. And what what God is sovereign over in our salvation and how that salvation points to Him and how that should lead us to praise. Just follow along as I kind of think through the book. I, one of the God-rejecting people of chapter 1, 20 and 21, has been saved. I rejected God. I did not want to give Him glory. I did not want to give Him thanks. And He saved me. Oh friend, let that produce worship. I, one of the great mass of the unrighteous people in chapter 3, has been declared righteous. Let that produce worship. I, one of the enemies of God, chapter 5, verse 8, has been freed from God's wrath, has been reconciled as a friend to God. Let that produce worship. I, one of Adam's sons, have been crucified with Christ so that sin is no longer my master. That's chapter 6. Let that produce worship. I, one of those who was against God, now has God for me, giving me all things and praying for me. That's chapter 8. Oh, friend, let that produce worship. I, the one who is completely outside of God's plan for His chosen people as a Gentile, has been grafted into that plan and has been granted eternal salvation as His beloved Son. That's chapters 9 to 11. Oh, friend, let that produce worship. Friend, your salvation has granted to you innumerable riches, riches beyond our comprehension, riches that we cannot count. And friend, it is not just for you. It is ultimately for the praise of the glory of His grace. It's about Him. Let that produce worship. And then notice notice lastly, the fourth verse to this hymn, an ascription of praise, verse 34. Excuse me, verse 36. Because everything is from God and everything is for God, the Apostle Paul makes the only possible conclusion. He doesn't just call us to praise, but he praises himself. Not he praises himself, but he himself praises To Him be the glory forever. Unregenerate men fail to acknowledge and give thanks and honor God's glory. And the Apostle Paul says, only God gets glory. What is this glory that God gets? What is this glory that Paul ascribes to Him? God's glory is the revelation of every single thing that He is. It is the manifestation of His character and His nature. And then it is delight 
in that nature. And Paul says, God is above all things, and as He is above all things, we delight in Him. We treasure Him. We value Him. We want Him above all things. Unregenerate men will worship anything but God, including themselves. But the Apostle Paul says, I will only give glory to Him. What happens when we praise God? Two things at least. When we praise God, we say what God says about Himself. So John Piper has said, To rejoice in God is to celebrate a relationship with Him. It is to celebrate Him as He is and to celebrate our fellowship with Him. It is to affirm the truth about Him and to delight in that truth. When we praise God, we say what God says about Himself. And then secondly, we stimulate others to praise God. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer in his book, The Body of Divinity, says this, Though nothing can add to God's essential glory, yet praise exalts Him in the eyes of others. When we praise God, we spread His fame and renown. We display the trophies of His excellencies. In this manner, listen to this, in this manner the angels glorify Him. They are the choristers of heaven and do trumpet forth His praise. Praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. In praise, we do what the angels in heaven do. In praise, we do what we will do for all of eternity. And why do we praise Him? Because He is exalted above all things. Oh friends, the Apostle is so overwhelmed by the greatness of who God is and what He has done on His behalf in salvation, he cannot help but explode in gratitude and praise and worship. His theology has driven his worship. What's interesting is that, is that this benediction of praise sits not at the end of the book, but at the middle of the book. It sits, it sits in the middle of the book as he has concluded the, concluded the, the, the exposure of his theology of who God is. And as the theology of God has been exposed, he cannot wait to finish the book, but he must praise. He must give thanks. Oh, friends, in a similar way, our meditation of salvation should lead us to a humble gratitude and an explosive praise of Him. To delight in Him. To worship Him. Do we think of God? And do we think of our salvation in that way? Are we so overwhelmed by what God has done in saving us, that we cannot help but praise Him. I trust that is so for you this day. 
I trust it is so for you because that's how we're going to finish this morning to come and remember together this great salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, at the table of communion. And would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts for that? Our Father, we thank you for the riches of this salvation. Thank you, Father, for how you have enfolded us into salvation, have provided salvation for us. We were outside, infinitely removed from you, deserving only your wrath. We were sinners who loved our sin. We were sinners who hated you. We wanted nothing to do with you. Oh, we wanted an easy life. Oh, we wanted happiness. We wanted heaven. But we wanted it our way. We wanted to be righteous on our own. And thank you, our Father, that you reached into our sin-blackened, sin-sick hearts. And you saved us. It's nothing we could do. It's nothing we could comprehend. It's nothing that we could plan. It's nothing that we could know. It's not nothing that we could design. It's only because of you. And we pause this morning to give you worship in general and worship in particular for your salvation, for Christ our Savior. As we come to this table, we pause also to examine our hearts, to ask you to cleanse our hearts, And to make us to be right with you. So that if we are believers in Christ. That we are in fellowship with you. That there is no sin. That we are holding on to embracing. And wanting. More than we want you. But our sin has been confessed. And we're in harmony with you. And would you, Father, in these moments, even now, be exposing areas where we might need confession, where we have not confessed. And would you be so kind as to produce that confession in us so that we might praise and honor you through these elements. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.